Most of you know about Rob. He's come recently from Furman University, where he was campus minister for several years, and is now the campus minister at TCU here in Fort Worth. His wife, Kendall, his daughter, Wells, and son, Simeon, of course, are with him. Delightful, wonderful family. We're so thankful that God has brought them our way. Um, he, this has been a difficult time with Dustin's injury. Uh, our own Dustin Salter, who was here for so many years at TCU, switched with Rob, went to Furman, as most of you know, and then has had this uh, heart-rending injury that has put him in a coma. Uh, Rob recently preached here on a Tuesday night to the students and then Thursday night to the students in Furman. So it's been a difficult time and he's been used in a, in a great way to bring comfort to students on both campuses. Uh, so I'd like for us to uh, pray for Rob at this time. Let us pray. Lord, your ways are past finding out. And many times we have no way of seeing anything except we see the Lord Jesus. We see the cross. We see your love in Christ. And that is our only calm. It is our only hope. It is our only meaning in darkness. How we thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of our struggles and all of our heartache Anything that happens to any one of us. Lord, you are our hope. And eternal life with you is our only hope. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless our brother as he opens up to us this teaching of the precious shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we need your comfort and we need to see Christ. And we thank you that you are more eager to show him to us than we are to see him. I pray, Lord, that you would turn hearts even now to you. Hearts that may be wondering, may be here for every other reason but worship. But, Lord, fix our hearts and our minds upon the Lord Jesus Christ and bless our brother with joy as he proclaims the Lord Jesus for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you all today. If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to open them up to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Um, or you can use a copy of God's Word provided for you in the, uh, the pew rack and turn to page 896. Darwin said, I've spent the last six years um, as the RUF campus minister at Furman University and recently moved here and took a few weeks, but we've gotten to know the students and as is my job and the hope to be here, I've had the opportunity to start pastoring the students. And one of the, the girls in our group asked me if we could get together to talk and I said, sure. So we met at Panera and she was pretty distraught over just life and her spiritual growth and her spiritual state. And I, I asked her a little bit about it, and she said, you know, Rob, I really loved RUF a lot last year. But I just, there's really nothing spiritually that's, that's going on well in my life. I don't love RUF. 
Um, I know you're a good speaker, but it's not really gripping my heart. I said, well, how about the singing? How about the, the music? Well, no, you know, I'm, I'm having to even fight to open my mouth to sing. I don't feel like praising God right now. I don't feel like worshiping God right now. And so I said, well, let's, let's talk about it a little bit. So I started asking her questions. And as we kind of got to the core of where she was, um, started to find out that there were relational problems in her life, both with her family and with her friends, that her circumstances relationally were not good. Started talking to her about her health and the pressure that she felt at school. And those things weren't good either. Started to realize that, started to ask some questions about how things were last year. And started to find out that things were better circumstantially last year than they are today. What really, as we kind of move forward, what I really found out was that she started, she was starting to wrestle with and wonder if this Christianity thing was all it was cracked up to be. If God really is good, if he really is to be trusted, if this gospel really is good news. <clears throat> well, I can relate to that because, to be honest with you, I've been having the same question over the last few weeks. Is God really good? We're going to talk about the good shepherd this morning. And if you're being honest, you have you have some people that are like, God is good. Praise God. God is good all the time. We do that so that we can keep God at arm's distance oftentimes so that we don't really have to wrestle with the hard questions of life. But I think what we really need to ask this morning, is God really good? Can he really be trusted when the circumstances of our, of our life are as they are? Can we really believe that the gospel is good news? Is the king really on the throne? Is God really good? A good friend of mine and the coordinator for RUF gave me some wise counsel for myself and for the students during this hard time. I said, what are we supposed to tell them? He said, I don't think they need a new word. I think they need God's word. The same gospel we've had all along. So I'd ask you to follow along with me as I read from John 10, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read several verses, and so I'll try to guide you along. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father 
And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Then skip down to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's ask the Lord to open up His Word to us this morning. Our great God and King, we come... If we're honest, we come reluctantly. We do come hopefully, though. There is a ray of hope in our hearts and in our souls. that This is the place where we need to be. That we might find life. That we might find salvation. That we might find help. And yet, Father, we're scared because life is not easy and our circumstances are not good. And our faith is not strong. But rather, we are doubting. <clears throat> So, God, we pray that you would be gentle. That you would pierce to the even the most tender parts of our heart. But, Lord, as you go there, go with grace. As you go there, bring healing and restoration. That we might have hope and life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at Furman, there was a student that I got to know before I actually started the ministry there. And he didn't come so much to our large group meetings or participate so much in the ministry, but we knew each other from a distance. And he was from an affluent community in the southeast. His dad was a physician. He was a gifted guy. He was in one of the cool fraternities on campus. And one day he said, Rob, can we get together? I want to talk to you. So he was a senior. He was dating this girl pretty serious, thinking about getting married. And I said, sure. So we sat down and we started talking and he said, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Um, I think that I really have a heart for teaching. I really want to teach. I was blown away at that moment because I thought there was no way on planet Earth that this guy would ever want to be a school teacher because of where he came from and where I had stereotyped him and assumed he was going. And so I listened to him and I said, that's awesome. I, I mean, and so he started telling me about his heart and his love for teaching. And I got excited about it until the but came. He said, but Rob, you know, teachers don't make a lot of money. And I'm not sure that I can support a family and live the kind of life that, that I want to live on a teacher's salary. So I think I'm going to go to law school. That time my heart sank, plunged deep. Um, not because there's anything wrong with being a lawyer, but because... 
he didn't understand. He, he was he was he was he, he was wrestling with what he had a heart for, what God had given him gifts for and what he trusted for his own life. A few weeks ago, we've now that we've moved into our neighborhood, we've gotten to know some of our neighbors a little bit. And one of our neighbors recently had a bad accident where he uh, injured his hands severely. He can't do he was a, he works with his hands and no longer can he work with his hands. And um, he got this huge settlement from a very big company here in town. And so one one evening after after RUF, one of our my, the students from our group came over and we were just hanging out and and my neighbor was kind of out back and he he hollered over and he's we just started having this interchange. I noticed that he had been having a very good evening because he was very excited and um, a lot of life and joy was filling him. And um, he said, I said, how's it going? Life is good. I said, really? I said, so, so what's going on? How's the settlement and everything? Life is good. Um, I, just got, I just got my first payment in the mail. I mean, he was just fired up. Things were going strong. He says, have you ever driven a Lamborghini? I said, no, I never have. He said, three days, Lamborghini in the driveway. My lawyer bought it for me. I started to think, wow, you know, like I could probably get by with like losing the tips of a couple of fingers for a Lamborghini. But I realized that he said, you're welcome to drive it. I mean, hey, you can drive it. I said, uh, so then I looked at my student friend. I said, we're going to drive a Lamborghini. This is going to be awesome. I started to realize like, hey, there really is hope in this world. I'm going to get to drive a Lamborghini. I would just preach the sermon on the gospel. And then I'd heard a new gospel on the gospel of the Lamborghini and things were looking up. And so uh, I started I went, I, when we went to Greenville uh, before the most recent trip um, to do a wedding. I was telling people about this guy and all this kind of stuff. I've noticed that there is no Lamborghini parked in the driveway right now. And I've also noticed that things don't look so bright for him. But I've noticed something more about myself and less about him. The thing I've noticed about myself is what I put my trust in for life in this world. It's the same thing I've noticed about students, and it's the same thing I have a feeling I'm going to notice about you all as well. What do we really trust for life? This student who wanted to be a lawyer instead of a school teacher, he believes in all of his heart that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. He would believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The problem is he's just not sure if God is good on this earth. He doesn't trust God for life on this earth. That's the same thing I've realized about myself. Why do we pour so much effort into our beauty, into our appearance? I see this all the time on the college campus, how this is where young ladies and young men pour their hope into their beauty. And the thing that they trust for life is actually the thing that strips life from them. Thus, we have depression and eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia. I notice how we pour our lives and we pour all of our trust into these relationships, especially like sexual relationships, whether they be with another person or whether they be somehow on, in cyberspace or something like that. The thing that we believe will fill us up and make us whole. And those very things end up being the very things that not, don't give us life, but they take it away from us. You see, we don't trust God. We don't trust Christ because we're not sure if he's good. We're not sure if his intentions are to give us life on this earth. So what do we need? Where are we going to go with this this morning? I think we need to remember what we've forgotten. I think we need to know what we may have never known before. I think we need to understand something that we may have never understood before. We need to see the good 
We need to see the love of the Good Shepherd. We need to see how wide and long and high and deep the love of the Good Shepherd is for his sheep. We need to see how the purpose of the Good Shepherd is to give life to his sheep. Not just eternal life, but abundant life. So we're going to focus on three things this morning. The, the three things are going to kind of center around this. And this is the, if you want to know what this passage is about, if you want to go home and say, this is what it's about, I'll tell you in just a couple of sentences. This is it. Jesus is the good shepherd. He really is good. He really is good. He really does love his sheep. And he really is tr- trustworthy. His love is not just some two cent love. His love is extravagant. And so I want us to notice three things about the good shepherd and his love. The first is the purpose of his love. The second is the practice of the good shepherd's love. And the last is the promise of his love. Look in verse 10. It says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus, the good shepherd, says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Then look in verse 28. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. The purpose of Jesus' love, the purpose of the Good Shepherd's love, is to give us life. It's the very thing that we need most. All these other things that we trust for life are termed in this passage as thieves. Look in verse 10. What do all the other things that we trust in this world to give us life, to make us whole, what do they do? Verse 10, the thief comes only. These things only steal and kill and destroy. You see, these other shepherds, these false shepherds, these other gods, these other idols that we believe will fill us up, our money, our status, our reputation, our success, our brilliance, our families, our neatness, our tidiness, the behavior of our children, all these things that we worship, it says, these things will steal and kill and destroy the life that we long for. But not the good shepherd. The purpose of his love is to give us life and to give us abundant life, to give us eternal life. You see, if you think about the the whole story of the Bible, that in the beginning God created us and man was very good. Everything was was great. There was no sin. There was no there was no distance. There was perfect harmony between God and man. And then sin entered the world through Adam and everything was broken. And all of creation was cursed and we were cursed. And the result of the curse that God, a holy God, had to give to us was that we would die. And the good shepherd has come to reverse the effects of the fall. That's why he's come. He's come to take all of our sin, to come to take all of our brokenness, to turn what's been what's wrong and to make it right. That's the whole goal of the good shepherd. But it's not just eternal life. I think the hard part about this passage is we think about eternal life. And so, therefore, we ask Jesus into our heart. We trust God. We come to church every Sunday. We do a few Christian things. And then we just wait. Just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. We just wait till we die. So, a nice life after that. But we'll do some Christian things in the meantime. We see this whole idea of abundant life. And I think we kind of lump it over into eternal life. He's talking about an abundant eternal life like the streets paved with gold and all the pearls and all that kind of stuff in heaven. So we'll just wait here. But my friends, I don't think that's at all what the passage is talking about. When he's talking about abundant life, abundant life has to do with the here and now. It has to do with life on earth. I've just started to realize this. Um. 
It's taken a while, and I'm not, I haven't arrived there, and I'm still, once again, I'm kind of having to relearn it again. But I'll tell you just a, I kind of want to tell you all this story. I think it fits well with this idea. I'll try not to, to labor on it too long. But I grew up in a Christian home. I've never known today that I didn't know Jesus as my, my Savior and my Lord. Um, my, mom, my dad's a ruling elder in the PCA. My mom is a godly woman. I have a brother and sister. They're both believers. My name is Robert Earl Hamby III. It's a little weird, but I like it because I'm named after my dad and my grandfather. On the face of this earth, there was nobody who loved me more than my grandfather, Robert Earl Hamby Sr. But one of the things I discovered that I wasn't prepared for in this life was that everything was easy up till college. I can remember entering my first year of seminary as a counseling student, and I can remember having to write a paper on crisis and transition. The greatest crisis I had ever faced in all of my life was going to college. That was not much of a paper for a crisis and transition counseling class. Since then, there have been many crises and there has been a lot of transition that's taken place. The first came when we had planned our family and, the, and we had conceived our first child. And shortly thereafter, we found out that the child had died in the womb. Our beautiful daughter, Wells, was born, um, I guess, about a year after that. And then following that, within a period of a year and a half, Kendall had three more miscarriages. That ripped the heart and the life out of us individually and almost out of our marriage. And we began to ask the questions, not we weren't bold enough to talk about it out loud, but in our hearts. Is God really good? Can he really be trusted? Is this the kind of life? I mean, I started trying to figure out what did we do wrong? Did we do something wrong? Are we being punished for something? Well, we started to think about adoption. And initially, our hope for adoption was to satisfy our selfish needs, that we could be happy so that we could have more children, so that we could be that happy family and we could just get another baby so that we could be be happy ourselves. We realized as we studied adoption that adoption has nothing to do with making yourself happy. It has everything to do with giving someone else love. It has everything to do with serving someone else, with giving them a name, with giving them a family. See, that's the whole idea of God adopting us into his family is that he puts the lonely in families. And so we realized that this is going to be a whole new deal. So we started looking in in Greenville, South Carolina, with an agency called Bethany Christian Services about adopting uh, a baby. Well, we found out that there were 28 families in line at the time. This is a Christian adoption agency. There were 28 families in line at the time um, for white children. There were zero families in line at the time for black children, and they were about four black babies that had already been born. Well, we started to pray about it, um, and we weren't trying to, like, do something to cause a lot of attention to ourselves, but we just, as we wrestled with this whole idea of adoption, we said, well, this is what we've got to do. We've got to adopt fatherless children. It wasn't that we were going after a certain race or a certain color, but we've got to adopt fatherless children. So... I went and I talked to my grandmother and her twin on my mom's side. They said we would not be for that. I went and talked to my grandfather, the one that loves me more than anybody in the whole world. And to make a very, very, very long story short, in over a year of great struggle and trial, he said we will never love that baby. And we would never have a black child have the handy name. Just, you know, for I mean, I can't even begin to kind of go to the depths of where that left us, but it was the greatest thing that ever happened 
um, in a very sad way, in a very disappointing way in my life and in the wife of in the life of my wife, too. Well, that's when you kind of ask, is the good shepherd really good? Like I'm doing something for the kingdom. Isn't this supposed to bring life? It seems like it's bringing a lot of tragedy. Well, to make a long story short, yesterday was Wells's birthday. That's our daughter. My grandparents, my grandfather, who told me he'd never love our little boy, sent two um, $2 bills in the envelope for Wells. One of them said Wells on it. Actually, it didn't say Wells. The one that was $2 for Wells just came in the card. The other one had a little, little yellow sticky note, and on the front it said Simi. He didn't really, he's not the, he's, He's not really good with spelling and things like that, but I knew what he meant. It was for Simi, and that's what they call him. They call him Simi. And <clears throat> Valentine's Day, a year, almost a year ago, he sent him a card that says, To my great-grandson. And when we went home recently, he loved on Simeon. God's done an amazing work. God's bringing the kingdom in my grandfather's life. And the thing that I've noticed through all this struggle is that I do know abundant life. That the good shepherd really is good. His promise is not that life will be easy. His promise is not that we'll get rich and we'll be real healthy, but his promise is that the kingdom of God is coming, that justice and righteousness and mercy and grace are coming to rule and reign in this world. And if you want to know life, then life is only defined by justice and righteousness and mercy and grace. You see, we need to remember what we've forgotten. We need to know what we may have never known before. We need to understand How wide and long and high and deep the love of the Good Shepherd is for his people. He really is good. But how does God, how does the Good Shepherd accomplish this purpose? How does he accomplish the purpose of giving us abundant and eternal life? Look in verse 11. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He makes it real clear that he lays it down for the sheep. He lays it down for the sheep that know their need. If you look in verse 25, it says, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You see, the sheep that Jesus lays his life down for are the ones who are deeply aware of their need. Their only hope in life and in death is the love of the good shepherd and his laying his life down for them on their behalf. But, you know, the question that we should ask, I think, would be a good question or maybe a series of questions is, does Jesus really know what he's saying? Does he really know what he's doing? Does Jesus really know what sheep are like? Does he know who sheep are? And maybe more personally, and the real question we want to ask is, does Jesus really know who I am? See, sheep are not good. They're not like, they're not the kind of, they're not the smartest, brightest creatures. Y'all have heard plenty of things about sheep. They're really not very bright at all. They're helpless. They're quite dependent. They're very weak and foolish. There's not a lot that's great about sheep overall. Um, they're prone to wonder. They're not beautiful. They're not clean. You know, when we read the sheep, we kind of think about, you know, Bambi or the little lamb. Mary had a little lamb, and that seems all cute and cuddly, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about a very attractive or appealing animal or creature. Jesus knows. He knows quite well. Look in verse 14. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows who you are. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Look in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
This is a deep kind of knowledge. This is an extensive knowledge. Jesus, the good shepherd, is is very aware of all your weaknesses, of all your sin and of all your struggle, of all your trials. He's very aware of all of your idolatry, of all of your longings, of all of your temptations. He knows all these things quite well. He knows there's nothing appealing about me. He knows there's nothing appealing about you. There's nothing that would attract us toward him or that he would be attracted towards us to lay his life down for us. There's there's no merit that we hold. But the thing that makes his love so special is that if you you'll know this, especially if you're married or if you have kids or if you have a friend, that real love is based only upon knowledge. You can't love someone that you don't know. That's what's amazing about Jesus, the good shepherd's love, is that he knows us. He says, I know my own and he loves us. He loves us and his practice, his demonstration of his love is that he would lay his life down for us. Kind of a humorous story. We went. My father in law loves to hunt. He's uh, he just loves to hunt. And he took me to the hunting club in deep part of the low country, South Carolina, Kendall and I dated for two and a half years. We frequented their home, just so you know. I I, I knew her dad. He knew me. We saw much of one another. And after we were married, key part of the story, after we were married, uh, we went to the hunting club. He introduced me as Roger. Okay, it was not a joke. It wasn't a joke. So what do you do? I was Roger for the morning. <laughs> I could not bear to not be Roger for him. So I was like, I'll be Roger if you want me to be Roger. <laughs> it was a sad thing. Sometimes I, I think sometimes, you know, that's kind of humorous. But if we were like to bring it back a little bit to get to the heart of the matter, the issues of our heart. We sometimes wonder if that's how we are with God. There are a lot of people out in this world. Just look at all the people. Look at all. Just think about all. I mean, you think about all the people. Let's narrow it down. Think about all the Christians or the people that say they're Christians. Can God really know me? I mean, does God really know me? Does he really care? Does he really know me? The Bible says he does. Amazing part about it is verse three. It says the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. He calls us by name. He knows our name. He knows the right name. You look in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He knows us and he lays his life down for us. But the thing that's really neat about about this knowledge is is in verse 14. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Jesus compares Trinitarian knowledge, the knowledge of the father to the son, the son to the father, the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son, this comparison is, is, is made, is equated with Christ's knowledge, the Good Shepherd's knowledge of you, his sheep, with me, his sheep. This is the most intimate kind of knowledge that could ever be described. This is the deep, deep love. This is the deep, deep knowledge of Jesus for his sheep. The thing that's so glorious about the practice of the good shepherd, the thing that makes us, I mean, that really drives it home that we know Jesus really is good, is that he lays his life down. This is a paradox. This doesn't make any sense that the creator of all the world would die for us. This is the thing Tim Keller over and over talks about. This is the thing that's so unique and so special about Christianity. All other religions, salvation is earned by merit. 
people like you and me earn the merit before a false god. But not in Christianity. In Christianity, the God of the Bible, the creator God, the king, the shepherd, he comes and lays down his life for people like you and me, people who are unworthy. But verse 17 says he doesn't just die for us. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You see, we have victory. We have security. We have eternal life and abundant life, not because he dies alone, but because he rises as well. Because when he, as he is resurrected, so we are resurrected. You see, the way that Jesus practices this love, the way he does it is he takes all of your sin. He takes all of your ugliness, all of your filth upon himself. He did this on the cross. This was no small measure because when Christ became you, when Christ became me on the cross, God, the father forsook the son. That's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God had forsaken his son so that he could love and remember and know you. That's not just a story in Bible world. That's the reality. That's our only hope in life and in death is that that really is true. That the creator of the world forsook his only begotten son so that he could take you into his family. One of the things I get to do in the summer is I work at Camp Greystone. It's a girls camp um, in Tuxedo, North Carolina. I do the June session. Dustin got to do the the, uh, August session this past year. June is a great session because it's it's grades one through eighth grade. So first grade through eighth grade, little girls. I love I love little girls because they they don't let you get away with anything. And they ask all the questions that adults should ask, but adults don't ask. And they're just very open and humble and they listen. There's a lot of great I could just go on and on about uh, about little girls. Um, This one little girl named Kathleen, she was just, I could just tell she was just wrestling. Because what I do at Camp Greystone is I do a lot of devotions and I do preaching. And she said, Mr. Rob, I've just, I've been reading my Bible since you got here. This happens every year. It kills me. She says, I'm on, I'm in Genesis right now, but I can't wait to get to the New Testament. Last, the year before the girl said, I'm on page 82 of my Bible. Because they just start reading the Bible and they just start at the beginning, which is great. And they just start counting pages. And she says, I, you know, I'm understanding it, but I'm really not. And I said, well, what's troubling you? She said, well, I just can't figure out why he put that silver cup in his brother's sack. I was like, Joseph. I was like, okay, let's go there. Let's talk about that. So I, we sat down on the bench and I just started reading. Um, we read three chapters of the story of. You know, Joseph and all the stuff with his brother and and all that kind of stuff. And, and I said, all right, so we're working through it. And I said, Kathleen, this is what I want you to understand. Sometimes you're going to read the Bible and it's not going to make sense to you. Sometimes there's going to be parts of the Bible that you don't get. But this is what I want you to get. I want you to always remember this as you read your Bible. I want you to notice how God always relentlessly pursues a people for himself. He never leaves them. He never forsakes them. As you struggle with what the Bible is about, I always want you to remember the greater story that God is about the business of pursuing a people for himself. She said, you know, Mr. Robbins, just like you said, we're just so gross. We're just so unworthy. Isn't it amazing that God would lay his life down for us? A couple of days later, I got a little card from her, a little note that she gave me. She said, 
Dear Mr. Rob, thanks so much for all your sermons. I'm learning so much about the Bible. Humorous note, I think I want to be a preacher one day. Um, next part of the card, she says, I just can't believe God is so good. She says, I can't wait to go home and tell all of my friends about the goodness of God. This girl was in fourth grade. For a 32-year-old man, I guess, what, yeah, 32. Man, I I don't even know now. Um, That's humbling. See, the practice of the good shepherd's love is good because he lays down his life for his sheep. But we've got to look at one more thing, which is the promise of his love. Look in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, Jesus, the good shepherd, makes a promise to us, his sheep. He promises us eternal life, but he promises something, something equally as great that will never perish and that no one will snatch us out of his hand, that we have security, that we are tightly held in his grip, that we are safe, that we are free from needing to fear. Look in verse 29. My father, if that's not enough, if you need more, Jesus says, great, I'm going to give you some more. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. In case you wondered, he's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. There is no reason for you to fear. There is no reason for you to be nervous about danger. You can't be you can't be taken from my grasp. You can't be removed from my grip. That's what's so great about that hymn. Oh, love that will not let me go. That's the promise that we have. The good shepherd promises us a love that will never let us go. And this promise guarantees us security and safety and freedom. C.S. Lewis says that these are the promises that are associated with this. That one day we will be with Christ. That one day we will be like Christ. That we will have glory. That we will in some sense be at a feast or at a banquet or be entertained. And then lastly, that we shall have some sort of official position in the universe. Ruling cities, judging angels, being pillars of God's temple. And then he has this quote. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive the examination, find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. That's the promise of the good shepherd's love. This promise that we are secured in his grip, that he loves us so much. But I kind of want to go, I want to kind of apply this in one one more way and kind of go to something that gets me excited, but it's a hard thing. That's great. We think about eternal life. We think about heaven. I think we should think about heaven more than we do. If we realized our citizenship was in heaven, it would change the way we live on earth. I love the series that Darwin was doing. I've loved all the series, but I especially love the series that he was doing on Romans 8 and the redemption that we long for as a creation and the kingdom coming to earth. This is the way I kind of think about it. I'm a preacher, so... I'm kind of like I'm I'm kind of stuck, you know, I'm in ministry. And so I've got it. Even if I don't want to live for God, I've got to look like I'm living for God because that's my job. Um, but in Christianity, we've got 
uh, all these tiers of Christianity, you know, like that's just how it works. There's and this is the way I think about it. <laughs> like most of us, if we're really honest, we're settled. We just we're glad for the cheap seats in heaven. We don't care. We don't need anything more than that. We just don't want to be in hell. The cheap seats that we as far as we understand, they're pretty great. They, it's a great place. There's no tears. There's no sadness. There's no pain. We're, God's going to be with us. The cheap seats would be awesome. The thing we really want, and so if we can have the skybox on earth and the cheap seats in heaven, then that'll line up well. Therefore, we settle for a little lower level of Christianity. Because the abundant life that Jesus is talking about here, like, okay, I think I'm going to go after some money, some status, some fame, some beauty, and I'll mix in a little Christianity and I'll still make it to heaven. Because we don't really believe in the abundant life that the king grants us, that the good shepherd grants us on this earth. But C.S. Lewis once again says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, the work that we do now won't just be trashed when Christ returns. All this effort, all this kingdom building, all these prayers, that kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus isn't just going to come back and say, I'm going to burn it all up. When we read in Revelation, the king's going to come back, the good shepherd's going to come back, and he's going to redeem it. He's going to make it perfect. You see, the works and the efforts that we do now, they matter. They're making a difference. We actually, there's redemption that's taking place. The kingdom has already come. The abundant life that the good shepherd's talking about here is life lived in relationship with him as we seek his goodness, as we seek what he desires. And we have confidence to go about doing this because he promises us that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that no one will snatch us out of his hand. He promises that if we pursue this, our life won't be stolen or killed or destroyed, but rather, in verse 10, that we'll have life and we'll have it abundantly. So how are we going to go about doing this? Well, I'll end with this story. Probably one of my favorite stories. Um, There's a guy named Hal Farnsworth who is the pastor at uh, Redeemer Church, Presbyterian Church in Athens. He was formerly a RUF campus minister. When he was at Vanderbilt, another campus minister came up to him and he said, I'll tell you what, Hal, I'm just looking for 10 people. I'm just looking for 10 people that know and understand God's love and are going to follow him wherever he goes. I'm just looking for 10 people that are going to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Hal said, please tell me if you find those 10 people, because I want to stay as far away from them as I possibly can. Because what I'm looking for is I'm looking for 10 people, not that will follow Jesus wherever he goes, but I'm looking for 10 people that understands how much God loves them. I'm looking for 10 people who understand and know that it's that God's love is seared upon their heart about how wide and long and high and deep the love of the Father is for them. You see, until we really understand that the Good Shepherd really is good, until we understand that the Good Shepherd really does give us life, and that it's not just eternal life in heaven, but it's abundant life even now on earth, we'll never trust Him, we'll never serve Him, we'll never know life. But if we can grasp by his grace, if God is so good to condescend and to meet us here in all our pain and all of our sadness and all of our hurting. If he's so good as to condescend and to remind us of what we've forgotten, 
to help us to know what we may have never known before, to help us to understand how wide and long and high and deep the love of the Good Shepherd is for his sheep. Then we'll be new and we'll be whole. Let's pray. Our great God and King, our Good Shepherd, we thank you for your good word. We pray that it would be burned and seared upon our hearts. Lord, the goal this morning is not that we would all leave and get fired up for Jesus and start following you wherever you go. But Lord, that you'd simply ask, answer the question that we ask. Are you good? Are you trustworthy? Do you really love us? Lord, remind us that you that you purpose life for us. Remind us that you that the practice of your love is to lay your life down for us, that we might have life, Lord, and that you promise to never let us go. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen.